Those are pretty simple words, our Father. From the standpoint of understanding them, there doesn't seem to be anything there that is particularly complex or difficult. Just as there's nothing particularly difficult or complex about understanding what we read in 1 John earlier this morning, that you are love, you love us, we love you, we love one another. So the truths are simple. The complexity, I suppose, is the battle that rages in our hearts to do what you've called us to do. It is hard to love in these ways. Paul's already told us in this passage we need to be humble. We know that. But our flesh fights so hard against humility. And our flesh wants to make sure we are loved and is much slower to insist on loving others. And I thank you, our Father, that in your great kindness to us as a church body, that you have favored us with what we see as a biblical and godly love for one another. But Father, we know that the end of the race is not yet in sight. We have not finished. Our love is not yet perfectly mature. And so we want, we want to do this well. And so would you help us to grow in love for one another as the overflow of our love for you and your love for us. Would you guide us in this text? Would you guide me? Give me clarity. Give me accuracy. Woe to me if I do not handle this well and rightly. So give me accuracy. And then, Father, would you be pleased to give us joy in doing something with, which is only supernaturally wrought. This is, this is not a natural work to love others. It is a supernatural work. And would you be pleased to accomplish that even more in us this morning? We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, the Bible is a big book. And there are lots of verses and lots of chapters. And it's easy to pick up this big book and say it must be really complex. And on one level it is, for there are intricate arguments and intricate explanations on all kinds of points of theology. And yet, there is also a great simplicity to the text. It is not overly complicated. When I share the gospel with people, I, I don't recall anyone ever saying to me, wait, 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 slow down. That is like, that is like the most complex thought I have ever had in my life. Would you explain that again to me? Now, I have had people say something like, can you explain that again? I can't believe the simplicity of it. It seems too good to be true. So, well, the the gospel itself has many nuances and complexities and intricacies and delights, yet 
the basic message of it is intensely simple. And as we think about relationships within the context of the church body, which is Paul's topic here in Romans chapter 12, his explanation also is very simple and very clear. Now, frankly, he echoes, at least in theme, if not in word, the words of our Savior, who when he was asked what the greatest Old Testament commandment was out of the 618 commandments or 615 commandments, Jesus said the foremost is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. You take all of the Old Testament and you condense it down and you have two very simple commands, two very simple commands that are really one command, aren't they? You love Christ and out of the overflow of your love for Christ, you love one another. When he was leaving the disciples on the last night, the night of his betrayal, the night of his trial, the night of the last supper with the disciples, he gave them one final command and he says this, A new commandment I give to you that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Three times in those two verses he says love one another. It's not very complicated. But it can be hard, can it? It can be hard. This is, um, this is exactly, exactly what Paul's theme is in these verses that I just read, verses 9 to 11. It is that the defining attribute of our relationships is love. The defining attribute of our relationships in the body of Christ is love. Whatever else we say about our relationships, they can be nothing less than loving And I want to be careful about making absolute statements. After all, my mother taught me well. It's always bad to say always and never say never. And so that's deeply ingrained in in my mind. And at the same time, it just seems really clear that this is exactly what the apostle means, that the most essential part of our fellowship in the body of Christ is that we love one another. There's nothing more essential as we relate to one another that we, than that we have biblical love for one another. And, and in God's grace, that has been what we have shared in this church body for a great many years. It was, it was part of my prayer for this church before I ever came here, and it has been my prayer for the church and my gratitude for the church in all the years that I have been here. And it continues to be my prayer for this church body the Lord has been kind to allow us to grow in love for one another, in care for one another, in compassion for one another, in fellowship with one another. And yet, just as a husband and wife cannot grow complacent in their love and they must always be working to love one another still all the more, so we also must be working to grow in our love for one another in the church body. And And can we just be honest, particularly in this season when there are so many things that are pulling at us to tempt us to be disunified and unloving. We need to particularly give grace to one another and love one another well. 
I was reading something the other day. They said um, one of the lines that's being bandied about right now about the election is this is the most pivotal election that we've ever had in our lifetime. And then they went back and chronicled how many times over the last hundred years that that statement has been made. (laughs) Jack's laughing. Virtually every election. And in fact, in recent years, I think it was four years or eight years ago, they said, no, really, we say this all the time. This is the most important election of our, of our lifetimes, but this really is the most important election of our lifetimes. As if to convince us of that. But brothers and sisters, doesn't it feel like we're being pulled at in all kinds of ways? And uh, there are all kinds of opinions about what to do in the election. There are all kinds of opinions about masking and not masking and There are all kinds of opinions about using traditional or holistic medicine and homeschool or private school or public school and all kinds of other things that are, dare I say it, superficial. And they are tearing potentially at the fabric of our love for one another. Brothers and sisters, it's really quite simple. If we're going to be marked out as a church that loves Jesus Christ, we must love one another. The defining attribute of our relationships is love. So Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia, but we urge you, brethren, excel still more. We're on the right track. In God's grace... We're moving in the right direction. But brothers, sisters, let us excel still more. That's our call this morning. The defining attribute of our relationships is love. And the apostle in this passage, these three verses, is going to give us four qualities to guide our love in the church body. Four qualities to guide our love in the church body. He will say this in verse 9. Let love define your relationships. This is the imperative. This is the command. This is, this is our calling. Let love define our relationships within the body. And Paul's instruction in these verses almost seems to be proverbial. It, it sounds like Proverbs, right? It's just a series of very short, concise, packed statements. And they don't seem to be um, integrally connected to one another. They almost seem to be stand-alone statements. In fact, some have said that these, in fact, aren't even imperatives, that, that because these are, for you grammarians out there and you English majors out there, these are participles, these aren't imperatives. And so some have said because these are participles, these are, these are more descriptive about what love is than commands about what love is to do. It is true that these are not imperatives, but, but a participle can have an imperatival Force. It can have the force of a command. And contextually, it seems really clear that that is exactly what the Apostle Paul is doing. He wants us to hear these as commands and instructions about how we are to relate to one another in the body of Christ. And, and the theme that drives all of this through, the theme that is being driven all through these verses, and I think even further than beyond these three verses, is the theme of love. It, it's, the first, it's the first word in the verse, in verse 9, let love be without hypocrisy. And then notice verse 10, 
be devoted to one another, another. That's a word of love. In brotherly love, that's another word of love. And then he describes in verse 11 the kinds of ways that we are to love one another. In verse 13, he gives an example of what love looks like in the church body in that we contribute to one another and we practice hospitality to one another. This whole thing is about love and how we're going to care for one another in the body of Christ. And while they seem to be disconnected, this theme and this idea of love is what is binding them together. In fact, as you look at verse 9, your translation may have two italicized words. The words let and be might be italicized. And that simply means that those words actually aren't there in the Greek text, but the translators have supplied them in order to to make it make sense in English. And what it literally says is love without hypocrisy. It's a noun, not the verb love, but is a noun love with an adjective without hypocrisy or with genuineness or with sincerity. And it's almost as if the apostle is saying, this is a heading for everything I'm going to talk about. Sincere love. And then from that heading, sincere love or an unhypocritical love flows the rest of the admonitions that he's going to give us. This is all about, this is all about love. And what is he going to say about love? First, he's going to point us to the priority of love. Remember the context in which Paul is writing in this chapter in verses 1 and 2. He has called us to be conformed to Jesus Christ in verses 3 to 8. He has talked about the use of spiritual gifts in the church body so that we are conformed to Jesus Christ. And now in verses 9 and following, he says, out of the overflow of the use of spiritual gifts and as you're being conformed to Christ, this is the way your relationships in the church body ought to function. And in verses 14 to 21, he's going to talk about the difficult relationships even the difficult relationships within the church body where perhaps even in the church body some are treating you as an unbeliever and acting in ungodly ways against you. What do you do then? How do you, how do you respond when people are out to harm you? And all of this is flying under the banner of love. It, it follows a very similar pattern to what Paul does in 1 Corinthians 12 and 13. In 1 Corinthians 12, he talks about spiritual gifting. In 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, he talks about the way that we carry out the gifting in the church body, that love ought to dominate the way we care for one another. And this is no small issue. Our Savior has emphasized in his ministry the priority of loving one another and caring for one another. Again, in John 15, in the upper room, similar to the the same setting, rather, as in John 13 that I read earlier. In John 15, he says this in verse 9, Just as the Father has loved me, I also have loved you. Abide, live in, dwell in, make your residence in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and I abide in His love. Verse 12, and this is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You you live in love for me, you live in my love for you, and then out of the overflow of that, you love one another. And this is what the New Testament writers have consistently emphasized throughout Throughout their letters, the writer to Hebrews told us to stimulate 
each other to love. That's Hebrews 10. James called Jesus' words the royal law. So Jesus' command to to um, love one another is the royal law, royal law. Peter called his readers to love in a variety of contexts. John, as we've already noted, has an entire book essentially built around this theme of love. And so he, he harps on this repeatedly. First John chapter 2. Whoever keeps his word, verse 5, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk in the manner that he walked. And how did he walk? He walked in love. Chapter 3, verse 11. This is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the evil one, and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. And he who does not love abides in death. It's love. It's love for one another. And, And Paul... Likewise, focuses in his letters on the concept of love, the priority of love. In this chapter, he calls us to love, verses 9 to 11, particularly. The next chapter, verse 8, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. That's a big statement. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet... And if there's any other commandment, it is all summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Love one another, care for one another, minister to one another, serve one another, love one another. Chapter 14, verse 15. It's possible not to love even within the context of the body. If because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. You're going to have preferences. You're going to have opinions about how to do things in wisdom. You're going to have opinions about about preferential issues, wisdom issues, non-binding, non-moral issues. And don't, for the sake of the way you prefer to do things, kill one another, kill another person by, by leading him into sin and leading him to violate his conscience by him following after you. If you do that, it's evidence you don't love Him. And we find this all through the Scriptures. Just one more example. Ephesians chapter 4, as Paul transitions from the teaching section of the book of Ephesians, he writes this in chapter 4, I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. That's verse 1. Verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. Be patient with one another, gracious towards one another, understanding of one another in love because you love one another and care for one another. Verse 15, speaking the truth in love. And it's not just speaking the truth, but but truthing in love. Everything about our lives ought to be truthful and carried out by love. But truthing in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head even Christ, from whom the whole body, every single member of the body, 
being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. What drives the building up is love. And the, Paul, the word that the Apostle Paul uses here is, um, is the word agape. It's the word we would expect to find there. It's a committed love. It's a sacrificial love. It is, it is a love that is given because of the need of the one that is loved and without consideration of the one who is giving. And so over the years, I've kind of developed and tweaked and thought about a definition of love. And so I have quoted this, I don't know. I don't think it's an overstatement to say I've probably quoted this hundreds of times. Love is a commitment of my will and affections to your needs and your best interests, regardless of the cost to me, as an expression of Christ's love for me. I like that definition a lot, but it's kind of clunky, and I know that. So this week... I was kind of thinking, how can I say that better? And so this is another attempt to say it better. Love is my privileged commitment to give what is good and gracious to you, regardless of what it costs, because Jesus loves me. In both those definitions, I'm trying to get at a couple of things. It's a joy, brothers. I know it's hard. I've had relationships that are hard to love in. I've had relationships where I've been the one that's been hard to love. And you probably have too. But brothers, when we're in Christ, it's our privilege. It's our joy. We're not just, we're not just doing stuff for one another. We are all in. And we are committed with our affections, our emotions. We're not just dispassionately doing stuff. Our hearts engaged in the process. And it is, it is to give. It is sacrificial. It is a pouring out. It is a being used up. A willingness to be used up, a light, a delight to be used up. For everything that the other person needs, what is good for them, what is gracious towards them, what they need, and what is best for them. Notice I avoided the word what they want. Um, I love my children, but when they were little, what they wanted, I very regularly withheld from them. Daddy, can I stay up till 11 o'clock and watch this movie? Nope. Daddy, can we have ice cream for dinner? Nope. Can we have ice cream for breakfast? Well, maybe. No. <laughs> I mean, you do some of that stuff some of the time, right? But you can't feed them on that kind of diet. You can't give them everything that they want. You want to be gracious, but if you give them what they want, they're going to they're gonna go the wrong direction. So this is love. And brothers and sisters, I typically use this in, in, in the context of marriage. Remind myself, my, my joyful privilege for Regine. I, I use this in discipling. I use this in counseling. I, I've used this in preaching on marriage I don't know how many times. But it's way beyond marriage, isn't it? Brothers and sisters, if you have a relationship, this is what defines how we relate to one another. 
We, we love one another in every relationship. There, there, is, there is no relationship that you have where you are excused from doing this. Can I say that again? You have no relationships where you are excused from loving. That's where the rubber hits the road, doesn't it? I have some where it's pretty easy. Y'all are easy. Regine. Regine is amazing. It's so easy. But there are other relationships that are tough. And that's where Paul wants to bore in today. On the tough ones, how are you going to love? Love is our priority. Love also must be sincere. Paul tells us here in this imperative that love must be sincere. He says it this way, let love be without hypocrisy. You know what hypocrisy is. That's it's the wearing of a mask. So hypocrisy was the word that was used in the Greek culture for, for actors. And when they would act, they didn't have robes and costumes like we do today. And so someone would just pick up a mask and, you know, this is the Regine mask and this is the Greg Warren mask and this is the Rob Treat mask and this is the Roger Recksteiner mask. And when we wear those masks, that's the character we're playing. We just wear a mask. And to have a mask was to be someone that you are not. It is to be a hypocrite. And so when it is used in the context of biblical ideas, and here when it's used in the context of love, the apostle is saying, don't be someone who play acts at love. Don't be someone who pretends at love. Don't love with insincerity. And with, and with that phrase, the apostle is, is openly addressing the reality that it is possible to do things for others that give the external appearance of love, but in fact are unloving. It may look to the world like we are sacrificing and giving, but the heart is far removed from it. And brothers and sisters, it's not love. And we dare not go there. And the actions that come from empty hearts and that are devoid of the transforming work of Christ are like the whitewashed tombs of the Pharisees. They are vain attempts to hide the dead men's bones that are lurking inside of us. What does hypocritical love look like? It's the kind of love that we do when we're just doing our duty. I love the illustration. I won't take the time to play it out, but I love the, I love the illustration that Piper gives about coming home to his wife on their anniversary, right? He's got roses behind his back. He walks in the door. Hey, Noel, good to see you. I'm going to play it like it's Regine. Okay, so Regine, good to see you. It's our anniversary today. I got you flowers. Oh, Terry, they're beautiful. They're roses and they're the color I love. Well, she actually loves all the colors of roses. But anyway, I love the color and they're just so beautiful. Why did you? I have to. Doesn't work, does it? You want to sleep with Fiona today? Fiona's our dog. You want to sleep with Fiona tonight? Brothers, duty doesn't cut it with love. It's the kind of, kind of statement that gets made. I've heard this way too many times. 
even in the context of this church body. I love him and the person is named. I just don't like him. Doesn't work. You don't like him. It means you don't love him. It means you don't care about him. You're not engaged. I've had people say, hey, can you talk to so-and-so about such and such? I just can't talk to that person. It's unloving, brothers. And I'm sure people have said that about me as well. Hey, <laughs> hey, Keith, would you go talk to Terry? <laughs> I just can't talk to him. And brothers, we need, we need to do better than that. Sometimes we're hypocritical, not just because we're not committed to loving the unlovely, but we're also unhip- uh, we're hypocritical because we have committed to loving ourselves above others. I love what Whitney says in his book, Ten Questions to Diagnose Your Spiritual Health. A man will be absolutely convinced that he loves a beautiful woman and indeed will do almost anything for her. He adores her, thinks of her constantly, and wants nothing more than her. But the truth is, he loves her only for what she does to and for him. She incites, intrigues, and arouses him. He wants her to be happy, but in reality, he wants her to find her happiness in bringing pleasure to him. And he continues to love her only to the degree degree that she continues to please him. He will do nothing for her willingly or without hypocrisy unless it brings pleasure for him to do it anyway. And this kind of love is just as common in other relationships as romantic ones. With parents or children, siblings, neighbors or friends, we can act in loving ways, but either heartlessly or only because it pleases us to do so. We do not measure our growth in Christ-likeness by the vicissitudes of this kind of love. And brothers and sisters, if we have that kind of love in this body, if we have a hypocritical kind of love, if we have, if we have a kind of love that looks good superficially but is not heart deep, it will kill this body. Destroy our testimony and rot us from the inside out. I'm not saying that's where we are. I see many signs that we're in the other direction, but brothers, we need to excel still more. We want sincere love. What does that kind of love look like? I, I love the story about Robertson McWilkin, who himself is now with the Lord. But a couple decades ago, he was the president of what was then called Columbia Bible College and is now Columbia University. And at the height of his ministry, the time when he was being the most impactful He stepped aside from the presidency of that school and said this. My dear wife Muriel has been in failing mental health for about eight years. She had a form of dementia. And so far I've been able to carry both her ever-growing needs and my leadership responsibilities at the school. But recently it has become apparent that Muriel is contented most of the time she is with me and almost none of the time I am away from her. It is not just discontent. She is filled with fear, even terror, that she has lost me, and she always goes in search of me when I leave home. And then she may be full of anger when she cannot get to me. So it is clear that she needs me now full time. Perhaps it would be helpful to you to understand if I shared what I shared at the time of the announcement of my resignation in chapel. The decision was made in a way 42 years ago when I promised to care for Muriel in sickness and in health till death do us part. So as I told the students and faculty, as a man of my word, 
Integrity has something to do with it. But so does fairness. She has cared for me fully and sacrificially all these years. If I cared for her the next 40 years, I would not be out of debt. Duty, however, can be grim and stoic. But there is more. I love Muriel. She is a delight to me. Her childlike dependence and confidence in me, her warm love, occasional flashes of that wit I used to relish so, her happy spirit and tough resilience in the face of her continual distressing frustration. I do not have to care for her. I get to. It is an honor to care for her. That's sincere love. It defines our relationships. It's non-optional. We must love. There's a second aspect of love that he's going to give us here. Let your love be genuine. Let your love be genuine. This is the quality of our love or the morality of our love. So he's given the heading, love sincerely or sincere love. What does sincere love look like? Well, he tells us in the next two clauses in verses 9 and 10, sincere love looks like this. It abhors what is evil. It clings to what is good. Here's a case. Kids, are you paying attention? Here's a case where you can use the word hate. So your mom is always telling you, as my mom always told me, don't ever say hate. It's always bad to say hate. (laughs) But this is a case where hate is good. Hate everything that is evil. The word abhor means to despise or to hate bitterly. It is a call to despise the evil around him. It is a call to despise the world system, its influence, to be rid of the corrupting influence of the flesh. It is to hate everything that is against God. The psalmist says something similar in Psalm 97, verse 10. Hate evil, you who love the Lord, who preserves the souls of his godly ones. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. He takes you out of the hand of the wicked, and because you're out of the wicked, you should hate that which is wicked. Hate everything that is wicked. Hate everything that is evil. And then along with that, cling to what is good. The word cling... Um, don't think Velcro, think Gorilla Glue. Bonded, glued inseparably, welded, fixed entirely so as to not be taken apart from. And what are you glued to? That which is good, morally good. It's that which is opposite of the evil. And and as the Apostle writes that, it's it's really simple to think, okay, in my personal life, if I'm going to have a sincere love, I ought to to hate evil things, I ought to to run from evil kinds of things, corrupting kinds of things, I ought to run from anger, I ought to run from pride, I ought to run from covetousness, I ought to run from, from lustfulness, I ought to run from every kind of temptation that will lead me away from Christ, and I need to run to everything that will take me to Christ. And, and that certainly is appropriate to think about that, but I don't think that's what Paul is emphasizing particularly. It's true, but I don't think that's what the apostle is emphasizing. Everything in this passage is about relationship. 
In verses 3 to 8, he's given us his explanation of spiritual gifts so that we can use the spiritual gifts in the the context of the church body so that we care for one another. Our gifts are not for us personally, but they're for the use in the church body. And then in verses 9 and following, everything that he's saying is about relationships and how we integrate with one another and care for one another. In fact, in verse 10, twice he will say, one another, be devoted to one another, give brotherly love, give preference to one another in honor. It's not about me, it's about you. And I think what the apostle is saying when he says, abhor what is evil and cling to what is good, he is saying within the context of the church body and within the context of relationships, abhor what is evil. And cling to what is good. I think the Apostle Paul is telling us here, help one another to cling to what is good and abhor what is evil. Do not overlook sin in the context of the church body. It's easy to say, oh, I just love that person. I could never confront him. Friends, that's not what love does. Love says... I love you, brother. Can we sit down and talk about this in your life? And don't you need that? There could be like one amen. I do. I'm thankful that I have brothers in my life that aren't afraid to come to me and say, Hey man, I love you. Can we talk? Some of you guys have been faithful in this body to do that to me, with me. It's been a grace in my life. It's hard. It's hard to hear people say that about you, isn't it? But it's good. I'm thankful. Listen to what my favorite theo- one, one of my favorite theologians, William G.T. Shedd, writes, Indifference towards sin, and especially in indulgent temper, excuse me, indulgence towards sin, and especially an indulgent temper toward it, proves there is no real love of holiness. The true measure of a man's love of God is in the intensity with which he hates evil. I don't just hate evil in my own life. I hate evil. And when we love one another, we're going to hate evil enough that we'll go to one another and say, can I help you with that? Because that's a snare that will bind you and destroy you. Let me show you a pathway out through Christ. When we love unhypocritically, we will hate every evil everywhere we see it And we will graciously help others to adhere and cling to, be gorilla glued to goodness. Let your love be for one another. This is the context in which we love. Who's going to be the recipient of our love? Be devoted to one another. It's one another. There's a mutuality in that little word, one another. I love you, I pour out my love for you, and you pour out your love for me. We, we mutually care for and love one another. 
And in a healthy church body, everybody's loving everybody and everybody is well cared for because we're all committed to loving one another. In what way does he say to love? He says, first of all, verse 10, be devoted to one another. That word devoted is a very rare term. In fact, this is the only time it's used in the New Testament. And it's a, it's a familial kind of love. It's a, it's a tender love. It's an affectionate love. It's, it's a family word. It's, it's a way of saying um, we are affectionate with those who are kin. And the sense is, because we have family relationships, we love. Be kind to kin, right? And that's what the Apostle is saying. He uses another word here as well. Not just be devoted to one another with this family love, but do it in brotherly love. That's the word Philadelphia. It's, It's a little bit different than the word agape, And Philadelphia, phileo is the verb, refers more to the emotional component of love. We enjoy one another. We like one another. We cultivate affection with one another. We love one another because we're brothers. Now, some of you are having images in this moment about your older brother and things that older brothers do to younger brothers. So let's sanctify that image, okay? That you would do anything for your brother because he's your brother. You're, you're devoted to him. You will labor for him. You will care for him. And you will be affectionate towards him. The world thinks about love this way. Who can I find that will love me? And that's the one I will love. And in the church we say, who needs love? That's the one I'm going to love. Because they're kin. Does that mean that we've got to love people that are different than us? Yes. That's the point. What makes our love different is not is not that we love one another because we all love the same things. What makes our love different is we love one another because and when we don't love all the same things. A friend of mine texted me on Thursday, I think, a pastor uh, up in another town north of here in Graham. And, um, <laughs> and the text said, Bibles, bullets, beef. Actually, it was Bibles plus bullets plus beef. Hey, brother, would you come join us at a men's fellowship in November at our church? And the idea is, who doesn't love Bible, bullets, and beef? They're going skeet shooting and going to eat hamburgers afterwards, I think. And the point is, everybody loves that stuff. But brothers, we're not, we're not the Qantas Club. We don't love only because we like the same stuff. Now, it's okay. It's okay to love beef. If you love beef, that's great. But can you love a vegan also? Because that, that's what binds us. Is not bullets, beef, or vegan. What binds us is Bible and Christ. Our unity and our harmony is not on the superficial. Our unity and harmony is around what Christ 
has done in us. And the way we love one another, he says at the end of verse 10, is that we give preference to one another in honor. And because we love, we consider others in the church to be more important than ourselves. What you, what is important to you, what is important for you, what you need is way more important than any inconvenience for me. And is love inconvenient? Yeah, it is, isn't it? It's inconvenient. Paul says in verse 3, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. Get off your high horse, so to speak. You be humble. This is just another way to say that. You prefer someone else because... Your goal is not to honor yourself. Your goal is to honor Him. There's another facet to this facet to this as well, and that is we should love. And by that I mean we should initiate love. We should pursue opportunities to love. We need, we need to push into the necessity of loving one another. There's a real temptation to say, I don't need relationships. It's just not worth the effort. It's just not worth the pain. Pastor, you don't know how I've been burned. Okay, I may not know yours. But we've all been burned. Lane and Tripp write this in their book, Relationships, A Mess Worth Making. Everyone has hit that wall called, Why Bother With People? We reach points in our relationships where we wonder if they are worth it. A wife decides it's not worth opening to her husband, opening up to her husband anymore. An employee goes to work, shuts the door, and only comes out when it's time to go home. A teenager comes home from school and goes to his room until he is cajoled to meet the, to join the family for dinner. Someone probably dropped out of a small group this week because she didn't think it was worth the hassle. Family gatherings are reduced to people sharing the same geographical space devoid of any meaningful relationship. The church meeting becomes a formality with little or no attempt to share in the lives of others. Neighbors live side by side for years, but no one knows anything significant about the other. We live with this tension of self-protective isolation and the dream for meaningful relationships. Where are you on that continuum right now? Other times we, we think we're self-sufficient. I'm not pursuing relationships because I don't need it. I don't have a compelling need. I'm fully satisfied in myself. I'm fine on my own. I've reached that place in my life where I'm not dependent on others. I don't need others financially. And frankly, I'm okay being alone. I don't need a lot. And, and that may be true. But that's not what the text says, is it? It says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. You give to the other. You be proactive in finding relationships in the body of Christ to build into others. We we, brothers and sisters, we need to remind ourselves regularly what John Piper said a number of years ago. Listen. Listen. We don't 
need to be loved by others. Yes, it feels good, but it is not essential. Listen, loving, not being loved is essential. You don't need to be loved when you are loved by Christ. You have everything you need. What you do need is to love others. What I need is to love others. So let your love be for one another. Last point. Let your love be persistent. This is the power of love. Let your love be persistent. Everything I've said this morning, my guess is you're thinking about particular people and you're thinking about some particular challenges you've got. Love is hard. At times we are not up to that task. How are we going to do it? And and Paul tells us how we're going to do it in verse 11. Not lagging behind in diligence. He means by that not being lazy, not giving up, persistently working hard, pressing in, continuing, not not throwing in the towel and saying, I'm done, that's it, I've done enough. Fervent in spirit. That's an attitude of zeal, persistence, not losing heart. He's going to say it this way in Galatians chapter 6. Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. Don't, don't give up. Now, of everything I read this week in my commentaries, I think the most ink was spilt on the question about the identity of the word spirit. Fervent in spirit. Is that small s or capital S? As in, is it my spirit within me? So I should be fervent within myself, which is how the New American Standard translators have taken it. Or is it fervent in in the Spirit of God, capital S, the Holy Spirit, as in the Spirit of Christ is compelling us and pushing us. And I went back and forth in my mind about 12 times this week about which way I thought it went. I think it's interesting that Paul says in Galatians 6, don't lose heart in doing good. So love one another, persist in that. And that follows what he says in chapter 5. The whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite, excuse me, if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. How can you love one another by the power of the Spirit? It's also interesting to note that the very next phrase he says, serving the Lord. So the way we serve, the way we love one another is not just a, a service and a love of one another. It is a service of Christ. It's a service of the Lord. It is, it is, it is the overflow of our love for Christ by which we love one another. And because of that, I am inclined to think, though I'm not going to say it dogmatically, I'm inclined to think that when he says fervent in spirit, he says fervently serving under the power and domination of the Spirit of God. So the Spirit of God is working in you to empower you so that you can care for one another and love one another. It says John Piper, love is the overflow of joy in God. 
If you don't love God, then you won't love one another. But when you love God, then you will love one another. And so our task is not just to grow in love for one another, but our task is to go vertical and to say, I need to deepen my love for Christ. And then when my love for Christ is deepened, then I can overflow into love for one another. Isn't this what Jesus taught Peter and the disciples when he asked Peter those questions in John 21 after breakfast? He said, do you love me, Peter? Yes, Lord. And feed my sheep. Do you love me, Peter? Yes, Lord. Tend my lambs. Do you love me, Peter? Yes, Lord. You know my heart. You know that I love you. Shepherd my sheep. You care for one another out of the overflow of your love for Christ. Guys, you want to know how to be a better, better husband? And how to be a better lover of your wife? Really simple. Love Christ. You cultivate your love for your wife by cultivating your love for Christ. You want to be a better parent? The, better, the best, way you, best thing you can do to love your children is to deepen your love for Jesus Christ. And the best thing we can do to love one another is to love Jesus Christ more fully. The power and ability to love one another is rooted in our love for and our devotion to Jesus Christ. This verse, verse 11, is just another way of saying, don't quit loving, brothers. Don't give up. Don't stop. I know, I know the race seems long. Don't stop. We've all been tempted to give up on relationships. It's too hard. It hurts too much. It'd just be better if I just disappear and the relationship goes away. And at the very point that we are most tempted to stop loving is the very place that we must fight all the more to keep and preserve life and love. As one writer says about marriage, there comes a time when we can no longer fall into love, but we must march into it. I think that's what the apostle was saying here in verse 11. We've got to march into it. Brothers and sisters, we live in challenging days, don't we? And these are challenging days, especially politically. I know you all have an opinion. Everybody's got an opinion. But do you love one another? Are you taking the differing opinions in this room and saying, because the opinions are different, I am pressing in harder to make sure that that one whom I differ with is loved. We know love is real when it is hardest to love and someone does it anyway. And that's why we honor and serve and rejoice and persevere because then love is authentic. So, pop quiz. Here we go. How are you doing in your love for others? Are you choosing to love others? Are you being proactive in your love? Are your demonstrations of love sincere? And are they an accurate reflection of your heart for them? Does your love reflect the morality of God 
Are you willing, because you both love Christ and your brother, to hate sin and confront it and cling to righteousness and protect it? Or do you overlook and ignore known sin in your life and the life of others? Do other believers receive your best love? Are you committed to loving others the way Christ loves them? Are you careful not to presume on the love of others in the body? Is your love costing you something? What's the evidence of your love for others? And are you finding your power and ability to love others in your increasing love for Christ? How are you doing? Let us excel still more. We started well. The Lord has been gracious to us. Let us press in and persevere and love with a mature love to the end. Father, what an amazing thing to say that you are our Father. That means you don't just do things for us. But you have worked and labored to bring us into your family. And we've experienced with you a love that we, that we know nowhere else. So how can we not love others in a reciprocal way? Father, I thank you that you have been gracious to give us love in this body. I'm grateful that so many times I've heard there's something unique here. I walked in the door and I saw it immediately. I'm grateful. That's your work of grace in our lives. But Father, we, we aren't perfect and we don't love perfectly. And we want to love as much like Christ loves as we can on this earth. And so would you be gracious to make us to do what the Apostle has called us to do in this body and love well? And especially in this season when there are so many things that potentially might tear us apart, might you preserve us through your love for us, our love for you, and the overflowing of that into love for one another. Might we excel still more. We pray in Christ's name.